Welcome back to About South. We are just going to jump right in this week talking to Carolyn Ware about Cajun Mardi Gras, which is not the same thing as the Mardi Gras you might be thinking of that happens in New Orleans. It is a different tradition, and Carolyn has spent years talking to Cajun communities about their own Mardi Gras celebrations. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. We are here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana at Louisiana State University with Dr. Carolyn Ware who is a folklorist and associate professor in the Department of English and has been here 16 years. Before that, she worked in private sector folklore and managed programs, was the folklorist for Jazz Fest, which that seems huge to me. I would love to hear more about that. And she is going to talk to us today about Cajun Mardi Gras, which may be something that Some of our listeners may know about, but they may not know anything about it. The two things they probably think about Louisiana are New Orleans Mardi Gras and Cajun, but not recognizing that Cajun Mardi Gras is a separate but related phenomenon. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. That's a good summary. So to begin, can you just tell us what is Cajun Mardi Gras? What is its history? What should the person new to this phenomenon understand about how it's different and special from maybe their popular images of Mardi Gras. So one of the things to know about the Cajun Mardi Gras is that it's not a replica or an outgrowth of the New Orleans Mardi Gras. And this is something that a lot of the Cajuns that I know, at least older generations, are very sensitive about. It's not a knockoff New Orleans Mardi Gras. It's actually a procession through the countryside that has its roots centuries ago in Europe and other places where people would mask and go around at certain times of the year, usually in the darker part of the the winter or fall, and they would disguise themselves so that they would be unrecognizable to their neighbors, and they would beg for things, whether it's money or food, and then they would put on some kind of performance. And if this sounds a lot like trick-or-treating at Halloween time, that's part of this same family tradition um, of midwinter kind of celebrations and begging processions. And so this is an outgrowth of that, presumably. We don't know a whole lot about its history in Louisiana before the 1880s when newspapers were printing uh, descriptions of it and saying it was a long-standing tradition. As usual, the Mardi Gras came out. But presumably, when the Acadians left, uh, left France and, um, and went to Canada, they took some form of this uh, celebration with them. And Although it might not have been celebrated at Mardi Gras, it might have been Christmas or another time or the middle of Lent, Mikaram as it's called and perhaps maintained it in some form in Acadie. And then when they came down here, uh, it was still performed in some kind of way that adapted itself to this new environment. It strikes me that we don't hear a lot popularly about 
rural Louisiana outside of something like, dare I say, like the Duck Dynasty, northern rural Louisiana. <laughs> um, but that this is something that happens in Louisiana, in Cajun communities, that I'm not sure popularly people really understand rural Louisiana or Louisiana outside of New Orleans. I mean, so do you think that that sort of constant focus on New Orleans city Mardi Gras is what keeps this people already don't understand rural Louisiana or think about it. They're not really sure what Cajun communities are. And they never even think all these things combined that this would be its own Mardi Gras tradition in space. Does that make sense? It does make sense to me. And I think there's a lot of truth in that for people who aren't from that part. When when we're talking about rural Cajun Mardi Gras, we're mainly talking about uh, communities west of Lafayette. So on the prairies of southwest Louisiana, a lot of small towns and, and villages. And so first of all, this is not something that's very visible unless you know it's there, unless you happen to be trying to drive in that part of the country on Mardi Gras and you get held up by a bunch of uh, riders or people on trucks who are going from house to house. So it's something that's not necessarily something that people from outside would know about because it is an insider thing. I think it's also notable that a lot of these small communities that have very active Cajun Mardi Gras traditions like Basile, Louisiana, are also places where a lot of the Cajun music that has become so popular has come from. Although people don't necessarily know that, they might associate some place like Lafayette, which is really not a Cajun community, um, with that kind of thing. So I think that these things are intermixed, the music, the Mardi Gras traditions, and other things. But yes, I think it's very easy for people to be surprised that there's anything west of Lafayette and that there is civilization there and, and a, a very vital culture. And what does Cajun Mardi Gras look like? It looks amazing. <laughs> uh, so if you were, say, innocently driving through Basile, Louisiana, what you would see coming towards you is first probably a sheriff's car blinking its lights and making sure that cars pull over out off the highways and roads because it really does take over the place. Um, and it would be followed by a couple of wagons of men and women. In Basile, they have separate wagons for their men and their women. And those people would be hanging out of the of the wagon, screaming at you, yelling at you, perhaps trying to run up to your car window and beg money from you. They would be dressed in very colorful outfits that are not called costumes. They are Mardi Gras suits. And those are usually very brightly colored pajama-like things with fringe, often a tall hat called a capuchon, a tall pointed hat, and they'll have masks on. So it can be a very scary sight if you don't know what you've stumbled on. And this has happened to commercial truck drivers who are just trying to make their route through Basile and they get stopped by these crazy people that are there. And what you would also see is at least one and probably several capitans or captains who would be in charge of things. And so they don't have masks on because they have to be the face of authority and people have to know who they are. Uh, and you would hear a lot of music probably coming from the trucks, either recorded Cajun music, including 
the several different versions of the Cajun Mardi Gras song, or sometimes a small band, a three-piece band, might be writing along with them and playing. And how has um, the sort of popularity of Cajun music alongside Zydeco music, has that influenced Cajun Mardi Gras, that that music has become popular? Um, and how, in terms of the sound of it, over time do you see people, sort of like with the innovation of the truck, from, from the horse to the truck, that the music has also shifted and changed, or people have responded to kind of technological innovation? I would I would say that the technology has changed, and certainly, you know, have it, being able to have recorded music. I don't know that the the well. First of all, there's the party music, the just general Cajun music um, that will often play while they're on the trucks or when they get to a house. And we haven't talked about the house stops yet, but one of the things that happens is that your band or your uh, radio or whatever plays Cajun music and the Mardi Gras dance. So that's separate from the actual Mardi Gras songs, of which there are two main variants. And those are sung, at least in most communities, and traditionally those are sung. So those songs have not changed a whole lot, except that the way they're learned has changed. They're sung in French. And so as an increasing number of uh, or a decreasing number of people, I should say, are um, speaking French fluently, Cajun French fluently, they have to learn it phonetically. And so, or they have to have one person who's fluent lead the song and others join in with the choruses. But as far as the, you know, the, the dance music, um, you hear a mix. There's still a very strong body of music from, say, the mid-20th century, classic groups like the Balfa Brothers, who, by the way, had a close connection to the Cajun Mardi Gras run in Basile, and they recorded a version of the Mardi Gras song that you still hear out there and that is very famous. So there have been changes in the music, but I think the repertoire maybe has not changed as much. Now, you will hear some newer kind of semi-funky um, Cajun and Zydeco music as they go along on the wagon to keep the energy up. But the songs themselves, the Mardi Gras songs, have not changed all that much. So usually, at least today, the houses along the route, the, the route is planned out in advance. And often you go to the same, a particular run like Basile will go to pretty much the same houses every year, but it might change out. Somebody might say, oh, we want you to stop at our house this year, or somebody's sick or just died and so you don't go there anymore. But usually now people will, will know where they're going to go. The captains will know where the run is going to stop. And the people along the route will know basically what time they're going to get there. And now that they have cell phones, it's, you know, I mean, they know up to the minute probably. So, and the house stop is really the center of the whole tradition. That's the point is, you know, the, the travel is really just getting you to those houses. 
let me describe it from the perspective of somebody maybe who's waiting at the house. So you're standing around waiting for the Mardi Gras to come, and then you hear the music first, and you see this procession coming along what might be a gravel road up to the house. And usually it's not just the family there. They have friends and other people and even tourists who come and know the stops and are welcome to stand out in the yard. And then traditionally, the run stops on, or the, the the trucks or horses, if this is still a horseback run, but none of the runs that I know that are women-centered are, are horseback runs for practical reasons. Um, they stop there. The captain approaches the family and asks for permission to uh, to stop there and visit, traditionally in French, but sometimes it's in English now. And then, of course, the homeowner said yes, and then the captains tell the Mardi Gras that they can proceed. And in some communities, especially ones that are all male runs on horseback, um, they rush, it's like a charge. It, or on footback, they run towards the house. That's what they do in Basile. And so you've got this energy from the start. In other places like Timamu, the women and the men on their run link arms and they kind of march and they sing the song as they proceed. Um, and then, so the things that usually happen during a house visit, although they may happen in different orders in different runs, is that you sing the traditional Mardi Gras song for your host. And there is a begging verse in there saying, please give us stuff. Um, and then you go around and beg. So the hosts are expected to provide something for the gumbo if they can. So they may hang, hand over a frozen chicken or rice, or one of the big entertainment things is to give a live chicken, but to throw it so that the um, so that the maskers have to chase it. And sometimes to make it really spectacular, the homeowner will get on the roof of the house and throw it so that it really runs. And then everybody runs through the muddy fields and, and it becomes this, you know, playful contest. And then the chicken is usually put in a cage. Um, and so you've got your song, you've got the chicken chase, if possible, and you've got begging. And for me, that's the most creative part. And I think uh, particular runs, you just see such cleverness there because it's a comical role. And it's a, a fine line that a good Mardi Gras beggar pushes between being funny and being a little bit scary especially for newcomers. So they will push you. And so they'll go and in Timamu, they'll hold out their cupped um, hand and point to it with a finger and say, which means um, little five cents. So they are trying to let you know that they want money. In other places, it might just be nonverbal thing and they'll pick at you and they might take off your cap or untie your shoes if you're not giving enough, especially if you're a visitor. And so all these semi-scary things, if you don't know what's going on, semi-playfully threatening things. Um, it's basically playful extortion, as one folklorist has said. And then there's often some more trickery. People will climb trees and um, the captains will have to try to get them down, whip them down, or they might go into places where they're theoretically not supposed to be. There's one run that has two women who always go into a crawfish pond and pull up a, a crawfish trap and you know try to bring it out. So there's the, the Mardi Gras in this case are being clowns where they're trying to make people laugh. Um, they're doing this, you know, playfully inversive kind of 
stuff of pretending to steal and all that kind of stuff. And that goes on sometimes for as much as half an hour in some runs, sometimes just for a few minutes until the captain uh, tells the Mardi Gras that it's time to get back on the truck. And so they get back on and they move on to the next house. Now, switching gears just a bit, I know that some of your research and work has focused on women's roles in Cajun Mardi Gras. Can you describe, and earlier you mentioned that the conveyance, whether by truck or horse, is also divided by gender. Can you talk about women's roles and this sort of gender division and why why is this a thing in Cajun Mardi Gras? Well, one of the reasons I got interested in Cajun Mardi Gras when I was just visiting down here as a graduate student spending a semester at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette was that all of the scholarship that I read about it described it as this hyper-masculine thing and it was a show of machismo and all that kind of thing. And it can be. It certainly can be. But somebody made me aware. Somehow I became aware that there were women who were running Mardi Gras and in fact there was at least one all-women Mardi Gras or almost all-women Mardi Gras. Their, their captains were men. Um, and so I got interested in that because I thought that this was something, an aspect that had really been neglected. And in fact, I would argue that women have always been an essential part of Mardi Gras, if, if only not as public performers, but as the people who made, designed and made the, the suits and made the capuchons, which is not as easy as it might sound, the tall pointed hats. Um, often men made the masks. And also, women were responsible, or at least partly responsible, for making the gumbo that is served at the end of them. So the idea of the Cajun Mardi Gras run, basically, is that this group, it's not done just to be silly and have fun, it's a way of providing for the community. So these riders go around from, traditionally from farmstead to farmstead now, it's often not farms, um, and they beg for ingredients for their gumbo. So people would give them live chickens if they had them. They would give them sausage, oil, whatever they could afford, rice. And that stuff would be transported back to the barn or wherever was kind of their their center of activity. And the women and older men would make a gumbo. And then everybody who had contributed in some way would come at the end of the day and um, eat and visit with the Mardi Gras and things like that. So women have always played a really important part in the Cajun Mardi Gras, and a create, creative part, I would think. And many of them have always felt very invested in it. Even if they didn't run themselves, they made sure that their children did. But as I started talking with older women, it became apparent to me that there were all women runs. One man described his mother as running Mardi Gras in this small farm community in the 1920s, and that's the only first person or second person, I guess, account I've heard um, of it going back that far, but I don't doubt that. I think that probably little groups of women have just been decided, hey, we're going to do this now. Um, But certainly by the 1950s and 60s, as first of all, you had World War II take away a lot of the men who ran Mardi Gras, but also as ideas about women's roles started to change, even in conservative South Louisiana, you had these women who said, hey, we want to do this. And what's really interesting is that most of them who decided to do it and form their own runs, well, first of all, some women tried to join all-male runs and were told this was not a good idea. And they weren't necessarily told that by the men, but by the wives of the male writers 
who thought there was going to be, because there is a lot of drinking uh, going on, at least in, in many runs. And so they were worried about drunken men and women cavorting too much. So women started forming their own Mardi Gras runs. But one of the things that they did was to ask some man to be their captain, which might seem like kind of reverting to this idea of men as the authoritarian ones, but I think it was really because women t wanted to cut loose and be silly. They're, they're moms the rest of the time, and so on this one day, they wanted to be the ones that cut up and uh, not the ones who have to slap people's hands and um, and be the, the order keepers. So there were a number of fairly short-lived in many um, instances, women's runs in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then I learned about two that were ongoing. One in the community, the rural community of Timamu or Little Mamu, which is not the town of Mamu. That has its own Mardi Gras run. Um, and that is still going with male captains. And then in the little town of Bazil, there was a group of women who formed their own run, and they would run on on Tuesday like the men's, the local men's run did. They would just go in opposite directions. One group would go north, the other would go south, and then the next year they'd switch. But at some time, I think in the 1970s or so, that got too expensive to, to do two parallel runs, two gumbos, two Mardi Gras dances. And so they merged, but they still have a woman's captain and a men's captain, and they theoretically travel in different trucks. That doesn't really, that gets mixed up a lot during the run, but that's theoretically what happens is that they have a women's truck and a men's truck. So uh, yeah, I just, I find fascinating how women think about this role, how they perform it, uh, the ways that their uh, their suits and their masks are often different and that it's their suits and masks that I think have captured the imagination of a lot of outsiders and so most of the mask makers that I know that sell their things are women. It's not a large number of people but the ones that you'll often find and the ones you find around my office most of them are made by women. What are some other ways, as you've kind of alluded to this, either with the external pressures of now tourists coming to watch this as some sort of spectator entity, mm -hmm. um, or other places where contemporary societal values around gender and race and performance and tourist spectacle, where are some places that that's bumped up against this longer tradition? How have the communities changed or responded to or maintained certain um, practices of this older tradition that may at times be kind of out of step? Even if it's something as simple as the chicken, like, you know, we can go to the grocery store and get a chicken. I There are a lot of uh, subtle and not so subtle changes, I think, with an outsider audience like that, including just making sure that everybody knows the route and where to go. So, you know, 
first of all, let me say that most of the communities that I know uh, welcome tourists as long as they don't cause any problems or anything like that. They like the attention and sometimes they solicit it. So some Mardi Gras groups have their route or their time of departure you know, listed in the newspaper and all that kind of stuff with Mardi Gras events. So people are usually welcome if they go along with the expectations of the run and give money. They're especially welcome if they give a lot of money. It's also one of the things that tourism has uh, brought is this more focused attention on some of the politically incorrect aspects mm. of Cajun Mardi Gras, which include, you know, we all know that Mardi Gras is about making fun of things and sometimes pushing that boundary pretty far and symbolic inversions. So men have always dressed up as, as women, and when they do that, of course, it's a very stereotypical, exaggerated version of women. That doesn't seem to cause as many problems, but there are some Cajun runs that still have a blackface figure. And this is usually one of the best clowns in the group, and they they play this clownish figure that is not necessarily race-based, sometimes it is, but certainly this is a blackface character, and this is disquieting to a lot of outsiders and has caused a lot of controversy. And I can't say that I'm surprised or... Um, that I disagree that, you know, this is something that can kind of take your breath away. At the same time, these clowns are really funny. And so it's, I don't know what the answer is to this of, you know, whether you need to change uh, these outdated and, and frankly kind of racist um, portrayals to accommodate your audience, or maybe you should be doing it just because the world is changing and you should do it for yourself. But there is sometimes um, that offense, whether it's because a visitor feels too roughly handled or scared or offended by something like the blackface figures. And there are other stereotypes too, sometimes stereotypical Native American figures and things like that. But I think really the, um, the blackface figures are the, are the big controversy. And is there, within the community, is there talk about, do we still need this figure? Is there a spectrum of opinions of, okay, this is this is something that's outdated. We can change this. It is certainly doing more harm than good in any conceivable way. And are there other people who are like, no, this is the tradition. We do this. I mean, is there a spectrum within the community about these figures where people are sort of looking at it critically about why are we still doing this? I do think there's a spectrum and I think a lot of people who always took it for granted, people my age for example, as they're exposed to other perspectives have started thinking, well maybe we don't need to do that, maybe we should stop it. Part of it is age related maybe. I think there's also a pushback though that people feel like this is our tradition, we don't understand it as racist. Um, and so why are these outsiders coming in and telling us? But yes, and I think it will change, continue to change. I'm seeing changes already in racial attitudes in Cajun Mardi Gras. You know, they have always been, or most have always been racially segregated. And now a few are a little bit integrated. And so I think that with time, people are reevaluating that. But I think they don't want to be told what to do by outsiders. So you are not a Cajun person. Right. 
you are an outsider in the community who's worked with the community and participated and is clearly very knowledgeable about the ins and outs of this. But as that outsider going into a misrule tradition celebration, what have been some of your most memorable experiences? Well, first of all, so I, I did a, a series of interviews in the fall of 1988 and had to come back in the spring for Mardi Gras because one of the points of this project was to give some, um, do some interviews in front of a live audience at this new festival in downtown Iota where the Timamu Mardi Gras comes in and they put on a performance and this exhibit was going to be there. And so since I had to come back for for that Mardi Gras, the, a couple of the women said, well, why don't you run with us this year? And it sounded like a good idea to me. And so I bought a suit and a mask from a local Mardi Gras costume maker, outfit maker, and got on that truck on the Saturday before Mardi Gras. It was cold and kind of wet. And I realized that I was a fish out of water. That first of all, I wasn't drinking at first. I don't drink that much. And everybody else was um, drinking. The, the thing to know about Cajun Mardi Gras is that the captains try to regulate how much people drink. There's you, Your fees that you pay to run Mardi Gras include some liquor. And so they have a beer truck and they decide when you're gonna have a beer stop. Women and men, however, tried to subvert that by sneaking on their own bottles under their costume and things like that and drinking. In, in Timamu, it's easy because you've got these long truck rides between stops. And so the women were swigging it down. And my first impression was, my feet are wet and cold. I'm not having a very good time here. I don't really know what to do. Um, and I was watching all these women clown around. So finally, my friend Suzanne got me to drink some of her peach schnapps. And I got a little tiddly. And the first thing I knew, I was perched in a tree and the captains were trying to get me down. And of course, they were being very gentle with me because I was the outsider. And one of them snuck around and whipped me in the butt, you know, when I was looking at the other way. And I got down from the tree and I felt, yes, I'm a Mardi Gras. But that was kind of the, the height of my Mardi Gras career. The tree, um, literally. The tree. So it was like about 10 <laughs> exactly feet. The height. Yeah, not even that. <laughs> Maybe five feet was the height. Yeah. And the funny thing, this is a favorite trick among the women in, um, in Timamu is to climb a tree. But most women, including me, are not strong enough to get up there on their own. So you see these teams of women boosting another woman up into the tree. And then the captains will come along. They'll whip them to get them down. And of course, this is all playful. And then they will, like true gentlemen, they will hold up their hand and help you down from the tree once you've condescended to come down. But yeah, that. so I finally understood a little bit about it. But the main message that I came away from that run with is I am not cut out to be a Mardi Gras. I think you have to be a very inventive, creative kind of person who can think up interesting and funny things to do on the spot, and that is not me. But it certainly gave me a great deal of respect. And what do most of the Mardi Gras, what daily lives do they go back to? Well, 
in Basile, for example, which is a small town, unfortunately, a lot of people there are unemployed or periodically unemployed. Many of the men work in the oil field. The women may work in, you know, local stores or teachers or whatever. And um, sometimes it's hard for them to get a day off. And one of the famous Mardi Gras, he's deceased now, but Voris Moro, who ran Mardi Gras for many years in Basile and was a captain for many years, he had a story that he would always tell folklorists that when he would take a new job, and he also um, ran bars and things like that in, in the area, he would tell his boss, I'll work for you Christmas, I'll work for you Easter, but I will not work for you on Mardi Gras. And if the boss wanted him to work on Mardi Gras, he would quit and walk away from it. So um, it's those kinds of things. A lot of the women uh, that were my age that ran in, in Timamu worked in, um, there, was, there was a school um, in in the area and they would work there or they might you know work in restaurants or whatever so kind of a lot of blue-collar labor some professionals um, but yeah some were farmers in the past a lot of uh, of the people in that area would have been farmers and that was one reason of course that they had chickens and um, other kinds of things to give and it's another reason why Mardi Gras could take place then because it was a slow time for farmers and it was also a time when people's food resources might be getting kind of slow if you weren't a farmer so it was a way for you know first of all they could afford the time but also then it was a way of sharing the resources of these certain people with with the community at large. And given this, the importance of having the day off and how this is a valued tradition, why, why is Cajun Mardi Gras important for these communities? I think that's something that it's really hard for an outsider like me, even one who has been coming for so many years and has good friends in both communities, to fully understand, I kind of understand, but let me tell you about my friend Kim Morrow from Basile. So Kim is now in his mid-50s and he grew up in a Mardi Gras family. Voris Morrow was his dad. His, his mother ran Mardi Gras and was a, a Mardi Gras capitaine. And so he grew up in the tradition and he would talk about how sometimes, because they didn't have a lot of money, and so sometimes they would forego Christmas presents in order to buy nice fabric for their Mardi Gras suits because that was really important to them. So for him, and Kim has a lot of health problems, his knees don't work, but until just a couple years ago, he would still stagger onto that truck at Mardi Gras and run as much as he could of the route. Um, and of course it's not running, but it's getting up and down off this, this truck and that's difficult on the knees and stomping and dancing just because for him it meant family, it meant community, it reminded him of, you know, growing up and something that was so important to his family, his connections to other people there. And by the time he was older, he was kind of a figure that younger Mardi Gras would come up to him and say, you know, you've been an inspiration to me as a Mardi Gras, which was really important to him. So all of those things, but it's not something that I can verbalize because I'm not sure I have an exact equivalent in my own life. Right. If in rural Louisiana, where life can be very hard, 
because of all the problems facing not only southeastern states but rural communities having a day where you a sacred day to be silly is probably also just very good for people psychologically right i mean it's something misrule traditions i guess maybe people need those you need that outlet I think everybody needs that outlet. I think everybody needs a venue to be silly and supported for being silly. But yes, the great thing about the Cajun Mardi Gras is that you can do it with your community members and your friends. And it's amazingly powerful. Um, When I think of the power of Mardi Gras, though, it's funny, and I don't know if this will really resonate with other people, but one of the times where I felt it was almost not to be sacrilegious, but it was almost a religious experience, was the the Basile run at the end of their country uh, run would come back into town, and one of the stops they made in town was at this little bar, um, a little hole in the wall with this wooden floor, and they would have a live band on that day, and the Mardi Gras would come in, and there would be people waiting there, you know, usually local people, but also some tourists as people got to know about it. And they would come in and do their, uh, they do this circular stomping dance, you know, and they pump their fists while the band plays the Mardi Gras song. And it is just so powerful in that place with the wooden floor that shakes with the energy and this group of people who really are almost oblivious to the people who are watching them. And I don't think I can articulate why that's so powerful, but I guess it was just like... um, that just being together, just being together and doing this thing together with the echoes of all the years that they've done it before and their memories of the captains and other people who aren't there anymore. It was just really moving to me. That's our show this week. Be sure to check out our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com, for some great pictures of Cajun Mardi Gras and all of the things that go along with it. We hope you've enjoyed this week's music, and we'd like to thank Carolyn Ware for really helping us curate the soundtrack for the episode. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was produced by Kelly Vines. Ajoa Danso is another co-producer on the show, and Lindsay Baker helps with our social marketing. Theme music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Next week, we're in our own neighborhood at the Wren's Nest, the historic home of Joel Chandler Harris, talking to Kaylin Thomas and Akbar Imhotep about the long legacy of Harris's work and what the Wren's Nest means for the 21st century. Until then, take care. Take care.